Testing. Okay, we're good. Well, I don't get to feel like a pop start tonight, but that's okay. Um, Ronnie, do you want to pray for us again to calm us back down? Okay, hello. Um, man, it's hard not to be frazzled after that, but that's okay. Technology, dude. I, um, I, just as an aside, technology is like so, like, such a pain, and I work with technology all the time, and um, it, I was chuckling a little bit earlier because Ronnie was like, it'll be on the website, right? And then I saw it in Katie's eyes, and I was thinking, like, I run the website. How did it get on the website? So anyway, okay. Hi, my name is Sam. Um, I am the local missions director for us here at DOXA. Um, some of you might have seen me this past Sunday um, up on stage talking about our um, gift drive uh, that we're about to do. Um, I, my bread and butter is just um, ex extending the love of Jesus to the community. And so um, I would love for you to jump in and, and help us with that. But that has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. So tonight, um, a little bit about who I am. Tonight, we're going to be talking about doubt. Um, we're going to be looking at Jesus and Thomas, um, their interaction, and specifically um, Thomas's struggle with doubt. And um, I'm excited to teach this text because it's one that I honestly can really, really relate to. Uh, and just so you know, um, I am coming into this chapter of the Bible, John 20, uh, not as somebody who, you know, has all of uh, his questions answered, everything figured out, and, and isn't struggling with doubt himself, um, but rather I really, really relate to Thomas in this text. Um, and so uh, I come into this text both, A, from the perspective of knowing and remembering very vividly what it was like to grow up not going to church um, and then first going to church and how crazy and weird that was and you know sometimes my Christian friends now will be like can you believe that people like think that church is crazy and weird and I'm like yeah I can't <laughs> like this whole endeavor is very quite odd um, and I love it and I and I love Jesus but that has not left me you know um, to then becoming a Christian and for many many years you know having questions but never really feeling like uh, acute doubt to then uh, my um junior year of college, just really being struck with doubt like I had never had before and feeling like for the first time, like God doesn't feel real to me anymore. Um, and just knowing like the pain of that to now, today, uh, I'm actually very at peace with all my struggles with doubt, with all my questions, um, but not because I don't have them anymore, um, but because I just know what to do with them. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm very influenced by, and this sermon's very going to be influenced by, um, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. So if anything in this sermon, you know, piques your interest, please go read this. Another aside, I need to quit doing asides, but uh, if you were here Sunday, David started his sermon like, ah, oh, I read this book by Tim Keller. It's really good. And I was like in the back, like, that's how I was going to start my sermon. Dang it, David. But that's okay. Um, so you're getting a lot of Tim Keller this week. But when I was a junior, I had just got back from a trip overseas. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I don't feel like God is real anymore. And I was freaking out. And I was telling uh, my, my D group about it. Um, and my discipleship group leader at the time was a guy named Nick Wheeler. Some of you know him. He's a um, biology scientist uh, at UW. I don't know. I tried looking up what his official title was. And I was just like, he's smart. He's a scientist. And um, he told me at the time in, in his wisdom, um, because I was telling my D group, I think what I need to do is just 
study theology like I've never done before and learn it front to back and then I won't have all these doubts. And he very wisely told me, I don't think that you should do that. I think that that's just gonna end up giving you more questions and probably leaving you feeling frustrated and burnt out. But instead, you should read this book by Tim Keller because he's gonna help you actually know what to do with your doubt. So, very excited to talk about doubt tonight. Um, But we've got a tall task because we're not just looking uh, at the story of Thomas, though we will, kind of on that um, micro level. But on a macro level, this chapter, John 20, is kind of a conclusion to the entire Gospel of John. Now, next week, um, we're going to get kind of a prologue uh, with um, Jesus interacting with Peter. But John will literally give us his thesis statement at the end of this chapter. Chapter. And so we have the tall task, not just of observing Thomas, but asking the question, why did he, John, end his book this way? This was the cap to his whole account of Jesus's life. And clearly, if you've read this book or if you've been paying attention through this series, the author, John, is very, very selective. I believe that he is telling us these things because they're true, but clearly he was very, very intentional in the stories that he picked, and he chose to end the whole story with this one. So, In the words of the great Disney Channel original uh, Brink, less talk, more blade. Um, I don't know why. Today I was like, that'd be funny to say. And then like right when I was coming up, I was like, no one has seen that movie, surely. And and, okay, I'm sorry. Open your Bible to John 20. Uh, Let's read. All right. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, but of them were running together, uh, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead." Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's just pray one more time. God, speak to us tonight. Show us who you are. Amen. We are at the point of the story where Jesus has been resurrected. And this resurrection is the foundation of our hope. It's the reason that we believe in him. But that very fact, that Jesus has been resurrected, is the very thing that Thomas here is doubting. He just can't buy into it. And for many of us, uh, even in this room or just in the world, doubt is a vice in its own right. We see it as bad, and if you have it, you should suppress it. And deny it. Many Christians are seriously terrified to confess doubt. I loved how um, one leader at uh, my home church growing up put it, he put it this way and I fully agree with him. He said that he has been in many circles of of Christian men who would much quicker rather uh, confess to a crippling addiction to pornography than ever confess that they're struggling with doubt. And I know that for myself, um, after becoming a Christian, I kind of convinced myself that in order to protect my faith, I just have to convince myself that atheists are stupid and that everything that they believe in is stupid. But of course, the problem with that is atheists aren't stupid. Many, many of them are, are, are very nice, smart people. And once I figured that out, that little fortification I had made started to crumble and freak me out. So for many people, doubt is a vice, but for many people, doubt is a virtue in its own right. And if you find any reason to doubt, you should just fully listen to that and and that only. Um, They pride themselves on being able to see through everything, right? Some of you guys know these people. Uh, They kind of think, I can poke holes into anything, and so I'm the enlightened one, right? But the problem is, that's also not helpful. Um, C.S. Lewis put it this way, talking about 
the cynic, uh, you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw the garden too, or through the garden too rather? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent, but a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Doubt is a vice, doubt is a virtue. Neither of them are really good options. But do you notice in this text that Jesus does neither of those things? He firmly rebukes Thomas. He firmly rebukes his doubt and he, and he tells him, do not disbelieve, but believe. And yet he meets him in his doubt. And so for you, I, I want you to see tonight that you neither need to outright suppress your doubt, nor do you need to bow down to it, but rather the author John tonight is going to show us what to do with our doubt. John's gonna show us what to do with our doubt, not if, but when we have it. So first, what do we do with our doubt? First thing I, I see here, take the claim seriously. Look with me at verse 24. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see, I will never believe. Take the claims of Christianity seriously. You have to start there. So for many people, um, you'll hear them say, you know, I, I just can't believe in a God that blank, such and such. And, and I want to ask um, to that person respectfully, uh, like, whose God do you not believe in? Because I might not believe in that God either, right? I, I remember when I was um, a sophomore in college and I uh, was taking an internship in Pennsylvania and I met a guy, super nice guy. Um, I, I, I loved meeting him and I have nothing bad to say about him, but he was very openly atheist and, and straight up uh, nihilistic. And I remember him saying, um, you believe in a man in the sky that just um, finds joy in, in committing genocide. And I'm like, I get how you got there, but I don't believe in that, you know? And often we choose not to take the Bible on its own terms. We take it on our terms, and then when we find that it doesn't meet our terms, we pull it apart for that, you know? So, so here's just one example, right? We will often kind of come up with these categories ahead of time and we'll say, okay, so either we have free will or God is in control of everything. And then we will take those two terms to God and say, okay, God, I've, don't worry, God, of the universe that created everything. I've created these terms for you, you know? Um, and, and you just tell me if you fit into these or rather I'll just tell you, you know? And then we read the Bible and clearly it says that we have free will and therefore responsibility. And yet clearly it says that God is in control of everything. And then we think, oh, there you go, <laughs> doesn't work. But that, the Bible is trying to assert both of those things are true. And so take it, you know, on face value at its own terms. And I just wanna say quick, before we get into this, um, if you are a person who uh, you know, either struggles with doubt as a Christian or you're just a skeptic looking in, none of this is meant to be a checkmate atheist, right? 
Like, have you guys heard that phrase? Like, you open your pizza box and the grease is like perfectly stained onto the lid, the shape of a cross, and you take a picture of it and post it online. You're like, checkmate atheist. And all of a sudden, you've got all these texts pouring in, like, bro, I was an atheist three minutes ago. I'm a Christian now. And you're like, yes, praise God, checkmate atheist. This is not that, right? I hope that if anything, if you have these questions, that you feel more seen and understood than ever. But take the claim seriously. The other thing that you'll hear a lot is people um, will come to you or maybe you, you feel this yourself, this kind of like, did you know that Christians believe this? Like they'll, they'll, they'll hear that you're going to saw company or whatever and they'll be like, no, 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 dude. Do you know they believe that a dead person got up from the dead? And the apostle John is like, yeah, I said that, <laughs> right? Like look with me at uh, the last verse of this text. It says, I lost my paper, sorry. Here we go. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It was not lost on John that that was an insane thing, thing to be claiming, that a dead person got up from the dead. And you can read the scholars yourself. You know, one great resource is a guy named N.T. Wright. He's a uh, renowned scholar, a bit biblical um, historian. And he just makes this like incredible case that like no one at that time was thinking like, oh yeah, people can get up from the dead. Neither Jews nor Gentiles were thinking that. So it's not like John, you know, if you went to him like, oh no, John, dead people can't do that. And he'd be like, oh my gosh. I hadn't thought of that, never mind. You know, he's fully aware that this is insane, but he's saying, I wrote these things so that you'll believe it. But then for some of us, we hear that and we go, aha, I knew it. This is all just propaganda. You admitted it. You're just telling me these things so that I'll believe you. But that's the other thing is that this clearly is not propaganda. It's just clearly not. Listen, I've got another quote from um, renowned author C.S. Lewis. He says this, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, like he's just giving us history, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The text clearly is meant to be read as history. It's clearly presenting itself as that and it's clearly not written as propaganda. Just a, a couple examples to look at in this text. This is part of the reason I wanted us to read the whole chapter. Does anyone remember who was the first person to see Jesus resurrected? You can shout it out if you know it. Mary. No one in that day, in the first century, in a very sexist and misogynistic time, would have taken that as like valuable um, evidence. A, a woman literally couldn't even give uh, her like eyewitness report in court. And so why on earth would John have that be the first person who sees it unless it really did happen and Jesus was turning the tables upside down? Or here's another one. If we were writing a legend, would you choose to have a quarter of the founders of the faith be moral failures? Literally in this text, we've already seen 
You know, one of them is, is doubting Jesus right now. Uh, Peter just betrayed him, and Judas literally sold Jesus' life for cash. Or this one, and this is maybe the most important, the veracity is in the eyewitnesses. So we were talking earlier about how there's kind of micro things happening in this story and macro things happening in this story. Like, why did he include this to, to cap off his story? I think that one of them is John needs to make it clear that Thomas did see Jesus and the other apostles did see Jesus. He puts them in there so that people reading this in their day could just go verify it themselves. They can just ask, did, did you actually see him? And listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Clearly, John and Paul feel very strongly that their case is in the fact that they saw him. And this is where um, Thomas goes wrong. His friends who, who he's been wa walking with for three years are telling him, no, Thomas, we saw, we're not telling you like, hey, we just had this idea, like, wouldn't that, or like, metaphorically speaking he's like with us no we saw him other other books say like we literally fed him fish his physical body was there and Paul says here he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive to say just go ask all you have to do is go to the city check the tomb is there a body there okay throw the whole thing out there's no body okay well I heard that Jesus appeared. Have you heard anything about that? I don't know what you're talking about. Then throw it out. But if it's true, you can just ask them and they'll tell you, yeah. And so um, Paul goes on to say, if the resurrection didn't happen, this whole thing is stupid and we're all stupid for believing it. But if it did, go ask them yourself. And I just need to acknowledge, we obviously don't have the liberty of going and asking people living in the first century, hey, did you see Jesus? But we do have to reconcile with the fact that this completely unlikely religion, that its core tenets did not have any pattern in all of history before this, and uh, for which like believing in would cost you everything socially and not get you that much, that all of a sudden, overnight, this new religion explodes in this area of the globe. And so, I mean, is that like the watertight, like, aha, I've proven it. No, but you do need to answer, how do we explain this if it weren't for the resurrection? So take the claim seriously. Next, what you need to do with your doubt, doubt your doubts. Okay, read with me. It says, Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Notice those criteria there. Unless I see his hands, unless I place my finger, and unless I place my hand. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So you see those criteria there. Thomas has three criteria. Unless these things happen, I will not believe. And interesting to note, 
on one hand, it's like, yeah, I get it. Like, they all got to see him. And of course, he's going to want that too. But then he goes above and beyond that and is like, unless I literally touch him, I'm not going to believe. Jesus arrives and in his grace, he, he, he invites him to do all of those things. But look, does the text say that he reached out and touched Jesus? No, it doesn't say that. And most commentators agree that more than likely, he did not do that. So by the end, we see that Thomas concludes that his criteria wasn't sufficient to choose to not believe in Jesus. So the next thing to do with your doubt is not suppress them, but rather to dig deeper into them and doubt your doubts. Okay, so for many, the fact that we cannot empirically prove that God is existing um, is enough for us to not believe in it. I get that, you know, and that's a very common thing that you hear. Um, but I want to assert that we all have deeply held values and beliefs that we just simply cannot empirically prove to be true or accurate, right? So you say that all people should be treated with dignity and respect. And I agree with that, but I can't in a lab empirically prove to you why that is. Or you might say that we should fight for social justice, and I agree with that, but if we're using empirical data alone, you can't get there. At the end of the day, you have to make a leap of faith in one way or the other based on the cards that were dealt. And so you can't um, empirically prove that God is real, but you cannot also empirically prove that God is not real. And I know that that sounds like a cheap answer, right? Like that sounds like, <laughs> like the checkmate atheist, like, well, you can't prove he's not real. And you're like, oh man, you got me, you know. I get that, but I'm not trying to be cheap. Rather, I'm just saying, let's just be intellectually fair and acknowledge that your options are not faith or no faith, but rather your options are, what will I place my faith in? So a couple examples of how to doubt your doubt. And there's so many, and I don't have time to even really get into just these few examples that I have, but just a couple to show how this works. For one, objective truth. Something that you, you'll hear often and that I've wrestled with a lot is like, how could I be so arrogant to think that there's one objective truth? Like, you, you can't say that. Everybody has their own truth, so on and so forth, and so we can't really trust Christianity. But when you think about that, when you doubt your doubt and start to peel that back, you begin to see the assumption underneath that is that I somehow am able to objectively say that there is no objective truth. Like, I somehow, you know, no one can say for sure what's true except for me right now saying what's true and what's not true, right? So by that logic alone, when I'm telling myself there's no objective truth, I shouldn't listen to myself because I can't objectively say that that's true. Okay, another one. And this one is deeply, deeply personal. And this was the reason that I did not for many years become a Christian. How can a good God allow evil and suffering? And I just got to say, like, this isn't something that I can just kind of lightly throw off, like, oh, well, well, here's why. No, I get, like, it hurts. Like, that question stinks. And for me, I wouldn't have worded it this way. What I would have worded it as is, I have not gone to church my entire life. Everything was fine. Then my parents got a divorce. My whole life fell apart. Everything sucks now. And now you're telling me that there's a God who's in control of everything and that he loves me. I don't think that either of those are true. Maybe one of them is true, but I, both those things cannot be true. But first, I need to ask myself, 
Is it possible that an infinite God looking down and interacting with finite me could have a reason, a good reason for suffering that I simply can't understand, right? Like, you know, any of you who have like uh, little siblings or nephews and nieces um, know that like kids are capable of asking really good questions and often they're, they're capable of asking questions that they can't understand, right? And so sometimes like, you know, how does the car work? Like you can kind of explain it, but then sometimes like, why is light up, you know? And you're like, what? Like, why is light up? And you're like, oh, I don't know what that means. They're like, I formed the question, so this, you have to be able to answer it, right? And it's like, you're not stupid, man, but, well, I mean, I guess maybe kids are stupid by like our standard. But I'm not trying to say that like we're stupid, you know? But we're capable of asking questions that we aren't capable of understanding. And so just on an intellectual level, I have to acknowledge that. And then it would be a very, very different story if we believed in a God that didn't enter in to our suffering. And so can I say I know and fully understand why God allows suffering? No, I, I can't, honestly, so that I totally understand it. But can I say that he is distant and removed from it? I can't say that either, because look at Jesus on the cross. We worship a God who got down and let an unjust power structure nail him to a cross for us. And now I can pray to a God who knows what my pain is like. And so little me struggling with my parents' divorce could one day get like God saying to me, Jesus saying to me, I know what it feels like to have everything not right with your dad. So I can't say that he's not entered into my suffering. And then lastly, I have to just honestly ask, what is the alternative some of you might remember when we went through the book of Ruth, I kind of hinted at this, but especially in college when I was wrestling through my doubt, I kind of hit this point where I was like, okay, Christianity kind of makes sense to me and nihilism kind of makes sense to me. All the stuff in between doesn't really make sense because all this other stuff is like, there's no objective truth, but you should believe in justice or everything is just material, but there's also meaning to life. Okay, so I know that those are, are a little bit shoddy, but, but nihilism or Christianity, and I hit this point where I'm like, for one, I know that I believe in, in the meaning in life, in love, and I know that nihilism isn't really like cool with that. And then also like, I just know that like, it's not like there's an answer to my suffering over there, you know? It's like chaos or still a little bit of a mystery, but with hope. And so I find myself like Peter in John chapter six, being asked by Jesus, are you gonna leave like the rest of them? And telling him, who else am I supposed to go to? You have the words of eternal life. So doubt your doubts. And then lastly, we've got take the claim seriously, doubt your doubts, doubt in community. Read with me. It says, he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So, you know, Thomas tends to get like a pretty bad rap. And a lot of you, especially if you grew up in like a, a more traditional church, like Catholic, 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 <laughs> Catholic, Lutheran, whatever, you probably know like the nickname for Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Don't be a doubting Thomas, you know. I really think that he gets a, a pretty undeserved bad rap, okay? Look with me at this next verse. He says, I will never believe eight days later 
his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. For eight days, Thomas is likely in agony. Everybody's saying that he's back, but I just can't get myself to believe it. And where is he? He's no doubt praying, singing, and in community with his brothers and sisters in Christ. The best place for you to doubt is in community. First, in community with Christians, partly just because they will challenge you for all the stuff that we've listed above, right? And if, if God says that you'll know him in his community, and I choose not to be in his community, should I be surprised that when I didn't take him up on his own terms, it's hard for me to believe? But, but then beyond that, we ought to doubt in community because that should be the safest place to doubt. And here I just want to pause and say, like, I know that likely some of you, maybe many of you, have been in these places where you've been just agonizing, wrestling through these questions, and you've been burned by Christians who either shut you down, shamed you for asking. The book of Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. So if you've experienced that, I just want to say, like, man, I'm sorry, but that's not Jesus. And I want to point you to Jesus who meets you in your doubt. And my prayer is that Saul Company would be the safest place to be wrestling with these questions. But then lastly, you should doubt in community, not just with Christians, but in community with Jesus himself. Not only with his disciples, but praying, singing, and ultimately the climax of this book is not just an assertion of a fact, but a personal confession between Thomas and Jesus himself, my Lord and my God. The author John is giving you an invitation ultimately not to believe a fact, but to know a person. Of course, he, he does want you to believe a fact, right? But what is his end goal in that? Look with me again at that last verse. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing you may have life in his name. John 1 verse 12 puts it like this. Those who believed in Jesus became sons and daughters of God. You are being invited not to believe a fact, but to know the person, Jesus. And if that's the case, then we need to ask, what does every relationship with every other person I've ever known entail? It entails risk. It entails communication. It entails proximity, right? It entails risk because, you know, like my best friend, Morgan, my wife, um, who's sitting in the back, like I couldn't know everything about her day one. It took risk to get to know her. It takes communication. You have to talk with people. And so for us with Jesus, we have to pray to him and read his word that he gave us. And then it takes proximity, drawing close to him, like James 4 says, in which he'll draw close back. And so if God says to you, you will know me through prayer, through reading my word, through worshiping me, and I'll make it personal, if I hear those things and I choose not to do those things, is it ultimately on God or on me that it's hard for me to believe, right? Like sometimes we can think like, oh, I'm gonna take the high road and I'm gonna do the double blind tests and I can't pray, I can't read the Bible, like I gotta figure this out on my own. But if God is saying like, you're not gonna believe if you don't participate with me as a person, then I need to take him up on his terms 
And you know, I, I just need to acknowledge to you that many of you are in this place where you're like, kind of leaning in, you're like, this sounds cool, but I can't just bring myself to believe in Christians, in organized religion, in theology, right? And I just want to say, dude, like those things have their place and, and there are legitimate reasons to embrace and critique those things, but I am asking you tonight to set those things aside and I'm giving you an in invitation to look at Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible and the people that he interacts with and choose if you'll believe in him or not. And so in closing, some of you here are, you know, not struggling with doubt at all right now. You feel good. Um, you might know someone who is struggling with doubt or you for sure will soon. Some of you here are just like, like me in college, deep agony. Like I don't feel like God is real anymore and it's freaking me out. And then some of you are just like the skeptic who's just interested but respectfully sitting on the side looking in. The invitation for you all is the same. Believe and have life. Believe and have life. Okay, so I want to put two scenarios in your mind before we close, okay? Uh, scenario one, dude standing on the edge of a cliff. Maybe it's Grand Canyon or something. I'm not an expert in cliffs. He's standing at the edge of a cliff, and he slips, his foot slips, he's falling off the cliff, and in the split second, he sees this tree branch sticking out of the side of the cliff, and in a split second, he decides, I gotta grab onto that branch, and he knows it's gonna save him, and he grabs onto it, and it's a sturdy branch. Okay, uh, scenario two, B universe. Um, dude's standing on the edge of a cliff, his foot slips, he's falling, in a split second, he sees the branch, and he's like, I don't know if that branch is gonna save me. He's like, maybe even 50-50, like, I don't know, I've never stood on that branch before, like, I never climbed when I was a kid, I don't know why I was on the edge of a cliff. If, Detail doesn't matter. But he sees the branch and he's like, I don't know if that's going to save me, but he grabs it. Which of those people survives? This is a stupid question. They both survive because the strength of their faith is not what mattered, but the object of their faith. And you need to hear that you don't need to have all of those questions figured out to believe and have life. You can still have those questions. I still wrestle with those questions, but Jesus is alive. And so I want to close with this verse, Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't need to have it all figured out. Jesus is alive. So come to him with all of your doubts. Let's pray. God, I hope, God, that people saw your scripture tonight. Um, and more than that, God, I hope that people saw you, Jesus. And anything that was confusing or distracting, God, I just pray, God, that that would all fall away, God, and that at the end of the day, people would be just compelled, like, this Jesus wants to know me as a person. And I don't have it all figured out. And I, and I don't understand, like, someone got up from the dead and, like, the Bible has all these other confusing things. And, God, would they just, like, be able to put that to the side right now and just come to you, Jesus, to believe and have life with their doubts, give you glory for it, God. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray.
Amen.